Well, good morning. Let's take our Bibles this morning and then turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 7 this morning. But our text this morning will actually just be verse 5. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit. Paul, a bondservant of Christ, Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word. Join with me in prayer this morning before we go to God's word. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word, and we thank you that it is inerrant. We thank you that it is uh, sufficient for life and godliness. We thank you that it is given to us in human language that we can read it and understand it. We thank you that we have the Holy Spirit that illuminates the truths of your word and convinces of them. And therefore, we can know truth for sure. And so I pray this morning that, again, you will take your word and use it as you wish in our hearts here this morning. In your name, amen. I remind you, and I've been reminding you every Sunday, that these first seven verses in Romans is one long run-on sentence. And I have to say, to some degree, I I have a heart after Paul in that way, so I I like to keep bringing it up. But it is one long sentence in the Greek, and as he writes this, and he is again introducing this letter. Now, reminding you that as we, we come through these first seven verses, we Paul has been introducing really reasons why we should ultimately study the book of Romans. We come to this book and we say, well, why should I study it? What's the big deal? And we said, well, first of all, you would recognize that as they received the book of Romans, they would take that scroll and they would open it up. And and right there would be who is writing this book. And we would see that right away they would read Paul. And they, they would recognize the identity of Paul, that one who once persecuted the church that is now proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they would pique their interest. They would recognize who this is coming from. But Paul doesn't just leave it there with his identity. He starts to give his credentials. And he says, this is why you should listen to me as I write this book. He says, because I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, completely set apart for the will of my master. I'm not coming on my own. In fact, he says, I'm an apostle I'm I'm an apostle of God. I've been set apart, called as an apostle. He called me. I didn't set myself up, but I'm an official proxy for the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, I have the authority to speak on his behalf. 
And I am bringing you, he says, because I've been set apart for the gospel. In other words, I have, I have been called to bring the gospel and this gospel is sourced in God and therefore you need to listen to it. Well, he starts in the next verse then to give us the second reason why we should look at the book of Romans. And he says it's because it's about the gospel. It's about the gospel. In fact, he really starts in verse 1 as he comes to really the theme of the book, the gospel. And he says that this is the gospel of God. In other words, the gospel is sourced in God. In other words, you want to listen to this because this is God's gospel. He's the one who ultimately brought it to be. But not only did he does the gospel come from God, but the gospel that we're bringing to you is actually confirmed by the Old Testament. This isn't new manna. This isn't some change in direction. This isn't some, something that was unforeseen. Actually, we trace through the Old Testament that actually this is exactly what God had promised from the Old Testament. And so what I'm bringing you, you can see in the Old Testament. It's just a fulfillment of the Old Testament doesn't just agree with it, but it fulfills what the Old Testament promises. Thirdly, and we saw this last week, that this, the reason we should study about the gospel is because it centers on the Son of God. In other words, it centers on God's Son, Jesus Christ. And we saw that Jesus Christ is the center of the gospel. There is no gospel without the Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw there were certain truths about the Son that we needed to recognize. We needed to recognize that, first of all, that He is the Son, which means He is divine, He is eternal. He is deity. And so to get a true gospel, you must recognize and you must agree with the truth that Jesus Christ is what? God. And then we saw that he had a human nature. He was born according to a descendant of David. In other words, he was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, which means that he came in and had a human nature. He was as human as you and I. In fact, when he walked around, people thought, is that not the carpenter's son? He had all, everything that was essential for human nature. And so he came here and we said he had to be born of the descendant of David because it was promised in the Old Testament. And we trace those, those promises in the Old Testament to demonstrate who Jesus was and the necessity for the Messiah to come through the line of David. Then we saw that the son was ultimately vindicated through his resurrection it was demonstrated and proved who he was. He said, this is, uh, I'm going to be raised. He raised himself. He therefore says that God accepted my sacrifice and now I am no longer the son in humiliation, but I am the God man who now has the right to rule and now he is called Lord. And then we saw his personal identity. He is Christ. He is our Lord and Master. He's the one who rules over us. And we must accept all of those facets of the Lord Jesus Christ to get the gospel right. So we continue this morning really going down that trail of what the gospel is about. We saw those first three truths about the gospel, that it is sourced in God, confirmed in the Old Testament, centered on the Son of God, and now we see a fourth truth, and that is simply this. Verse 5, 
through whom we have received the grace of, of apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, he, he, call, he begins here in verse 5. But really, what I would understand is he is reasserting his apostleship. In other words, he says, through whom, if, and this refers back to verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received now, the we here, I would understand, is a plural pronoun, but it is an editorial we. In other words, Paul is speaking of himself here. He's not speaking of other apostles or other believers, but he often uses the plural to speak of himself. And as in the rest of the book, in the rest of this context, he doesn't speak of other apostles. So I understand that he is saying, I have received grace and apostleship. And the idea is, I have received the grace of apostleship. In other words, the, the grace that I received is now defined by apostleship. And so he says, notice in, if you turn to chapter 15, verse 15, he says, But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given from God, given to me from God, to minister to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Okay, so he says, I was given a grace. What was that grace? To minister to the Gentiles. Now, it is possible that Paul is saying here, actually, I received grace and salvation and I received apostleship, but it's all tied together because he wouldn't be called as an apostle unless he received grace to salvation. And we would say this, if Paul received a call and he was to spread the gospel as an apostle, we are to emulate the apostles, which means that we, we too, therefore, have in the sense, an, a broader sense, an apostleship to go and tell others about the gospel. We've received grace. We should also give the, uh, share the gospel with others. But I would understand that Paul is primarily saying here, I, I am reaffirming my apostleship. I was given grace, and that grace was the apostleship to be a minister to the Gentiles. And in fact, Ephesians chapter 4 says, Christ gave gifts to the church, right? And he talks about those various gifts, and one of those gifts is what? He gave some to be apostles and prophets, teachers and pastors and teachers and evangelists. And so he says, this is one of the gifts that was given and Paul is in that role as an apostle. So after briefly stating his credentials here, he now moves on into verse five to give us this fourth truth. And that is simply this, the gospel demands a response. The gospel itself demands a response. In other words, there's a divine purpose when the gospel goes forth and it expects a response. He says, through him, that is through Christ, we have received grace and an apostleship to bring about obedience of faith. So that's the goal of the gospel. This is why the, the divine purpose behind the gospel, this is why the gospel goes forth to bring about the obedience of faith. And right away, what we know is this. It's not enough to hear the gospel. 
is not good enough just to hear the gospel, and certainly we are called to hear the gospel. How shall they hear, right, without a preacher, right? And how shall they hear if not be sent? But faith cometh by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we know that we have to hear it. But it's not enough, right? In fact, the churches, the churches are full of people who understand the facts of the gospel. There are many who would understand or articulate the gospel. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he was persecuting the church, completely understood the facts of the gospel. He knew exactly that Jesus Christ was claiming to be the Messiah. He thought it was absolutely blasphemous that the Messiah had, could die on the cross. No Messiah, the God could not die on the cross. This could not be. He understood the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. He just rejected them. Even, even in James chapter 2, it says what? That the demons believe, right? They believe and shudder. They, they, they're in fear. In other words, they recognize the truths of the gospel. They understand the facts of the gospel. They simply do not embrace it. They don't put their arms around it and grab it and believe it and be transformed by it. So the question then becomes... What does he mean by obedience of faith? Obedience of faith. He says, I'm giving the gospel for what? For the purpose of the obedience of faith. So there, there is some demands here. Who hears it? Obedience of faith. If you hear the gospel, there's obedience of faith. And so what does it mean? Well, there are several different views that, come, that, that are with this. Some say, I think that this means th that... When, since the gospel is a command, and we, we know that in Acts chapter 17, Paul said, God commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. And we know that the gospel is a command. We know it's an invitation, but we also know that it's a command that you must believe. And so they simply say, listen, obedience of faith means the command to believe the gospel and come in faith is, is, is therefore fulfilled in obedience. You, you are obedient to that call, sorry. You are, you are obedient to the call of faith when you come in salvation. In other words, when you believe in a saving way, you now are obedient and that's the obedience of faith. It simply means when I come to salvation, I obeyed the command to believe and therefore I've now been obedient. But that seems to really collapse the two ideas together too much and it, and it actually defines faith as obedience. Well, there are others that say, well, actually I think that obedience of faith simply means this, that faith produces obedience. And so when I come to salvation, my genuine faith starts to produce good works. And the idea is this, my, my faith now has from it results, there's this fruit called obedience that starts to come afterwards. And there's truth to that. There's certainly truth to the fact that when we, when we come in faith, we, we, we are ultimately, we will produce obedience. But I think there's a danger 
in separating, and, and, and what I mean is, is separating faith and obedience. In other words, when we come to salvation, faith is not, and we exercise faith, obedience isn't something that we get to later. We don't say, well, I'm going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then I'm going to wait. And maybe some way down the road, I'll start to obey. Right now, I'm just going to exercise faith, and then later, I'm going to exercise obedience. Because when you exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you actually exercise faith in this fact that you are coming to him, and you are what? Making him Lord of your life. You're accepting him in faith as Lord of your life, and therefore his lordship means and necessitates by its very nature that you are what? Obedient. In other words, obedience starts with faith. And here's the thing. There's no such thing as obedience without faith. You cannot be obedient without faith. And you cannot believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you cannot be walking... If you are not walking in faith and in a faith relationship with God, you can't be obedient. And so you need to have faith to be obedient, and you can't be be obedient without faith. And so these two are are intertwined together, and you can't separate them. In other words, saving faith is obedient faith. And when you come to salvation, you come in both faith and obedience. And that continues through the rest of your life. In other words, you don't just come in faith at the beginning and then live in obedience, and you don't just come in obedience and get faith later. You walk your whole Christian life is now filled with faith and repentance. None of your obedience will be able to be done without faith. And you won't obey unless you have faith, and they are tied together. And one thing that we want to make sure that we recognize is that the gospel calls for life transformation. It doesn't call for you to come to Christ and then maybe have a little small change or maybe do it later. But it says you are to walk by faith, right? And, and the scripture tells us that the what? The righteous walk by faith. In other words, faith is necessary for obedience. And so every, as we go out then, we must recognize that the gospel calls for us not just to be saved, not just to be obedient, but to come and walk in faith and obedience from the beginning, from our conversion, all the way through until our death. And so we are called, then, therefore, to walk that way. Again, Acts, uh, Romans 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation comes by believing. The righteous man shall live by what? Faith. In other words, you don't stop having faith when, you're, when, you, come, when you come to salvation. You continue to exercise it, and you continue to walk in it. We could say this. In one sense... When we could say that this phrase here in verse 5, obedience of faith, you could put an equal sign to salvation, and you could say that obedience and faith are two two sides of the same coin. They simply don't exist without each other. 
You cannot have a faith, right? Faith without works is what? Dead, right? Show me your faith without your works. And, he, and James is, being, is, saying, is basically saying, and you can't. And I will show you my faith by my works. And so we must, again, we must understand that we cannot have faith apart from obedience and obedience apart from faith. They are together and they are held together. You look at, again, at Paul as he speaks to the Romans and he says in verse 1, verse 8, your faith has come to be known throughout the whole world. He says your faith, everybody knows of your faith. How do they know of their faith? How are they sure that they have this faith? Romans chapter 16, verse 19. Your obedience has become known throughout, what? All the world. And so their faith and obedience walk together. And so for us, we must recognize that if we have the only faith that is saving is, a, is an obedient faith. Now probably everyone here in this room has heard the gospel. Most of us have heard the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it's concerning his son. And we saw that, that we had to believe that Jesus Christ is what? Deity. That he's fully God. We had to understand that he's fully man. That he was the Messiah that was promised. That he died, paid the price for sin on the cross after living a perfect life here on earth to be a substitute for us, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day, that God accepted his sacrifice, that he has now been raised and is seated at the right hand of the Father and that he's coming back. And that you cannot earn your salvation, you cannot work your way to him, that you need his righteousness imputed to you and that you must bow your knee to his lordship. You must repent of your sins against the holy God and you must turn to him. Most of us have heard that. Most of us have even affirmed that, where we would say, yeah, I believe that to be true. But the question becomes, have you ever responded to the gospel with a willingness to put away your sin? Have you ever responded in, in a way where you are turning to him, where you have accepted that pardon And the idea is this, has your, quote, faith, as you have come to and believe the facts of the gospel, has it put in you a consistent desire and a consistent to obey the Lord Jesus Christ and a consistent pattern to ultimately be obedient? Do you see obedience in your life? Do you have a desire for that obedience? That's what saving faith looks like. In fact, we must recognize that when we look to see if we're saved, we do not look to past experiences. And what I mean by that is we don't look back and we say, look, I remember I was four years old. I sat on my mom's knee and I prayed. Well, at least my mom told me I did, right? Or I raised my hand. I walked down an aisle. 
I wrote it in the back of a book, in the back of a Bible. I went up front at camp. I planted a tree in the backyard just to celebrate so that I know every time where I doubt my salvation, that's where I go. The scripture doesn't know anything about that. The scripture only knows that the way that you know that you've been transformed is because there's a change of desires and and a pattern of obedience. And that's why Peter says in 2 Peter, for this reason also applying diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and to your moral excellent knowledge and to your knowledge self-control and to your self-control perseverance and to your perseverance godliness. And in your godliness brotherly kindness and your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they will render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. In other words, it is a pattern of obedience and an increasing Christ-likeness that demonstrates your salvation. It's not whether you made a profession, but it is a faith that is obedient. An obedience that is done in faith. So getting straight to it. If you've made a profession and you even believe all of the facts of the gospel, but there's no sign of spiritual life, there's no fruit, there's no desire, there's no change, then you need to recognize based on scripture, what, you're not saved. You're not saved, you can't be. Because faith and obedience come together. And we have so confused this in the church today that we somehow think that God's standards are too high, obedience is too much, that we're being legalistic, and yet God says living faith is obedient and obedience is done in faith. For many of us, we might have had this experience too, where we have professed salvation at an early age and saw no fruit at all. Then all of a sudden, in our late teens, or early 20s, we, we have this epiphany, and the next thing you know, we're like, hey, you know what? I want to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a desire to follow after him. You know what? That, you say, I rededicated my life. No, you didn't. You just got saved. God has just opened your eyes to the truth of who he was. Because faith comes with obedience, and obedience is, is produced by faith. Which also means, and we've had, just had a baptism, guess what? You made that profession, and you got baptized. You know what? You didn't get baptized. You just got dunked. You weren't a believer. And you need to be rebaptized. And so we must recognize that the gospel calls for what? Obedience. And it calls for a response of faithful obedience. Obedience that comes from faith and faith that produces obedience. 
Again, we're not talking about perfection. We don't, we don't say you don't sin again. We just simply say there needs to be a direction. There needs to be a change. And so we are called to recognize the need for having living faith, as James calls it. So the first truth we looked at is simply that the gospel demands a response. There needs to be obedience. There's a divine purpose in that call. It's to transform lives. Now Paul continues on and he says, actually, the gospel is a universal message. We look at verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring obedience of faith among what? All the Gentiles. All the Gentiles. So where we get the, the Greek word here is ethnos. It can be translated the nations. But it can be a little bit misleading because it's not speaking specifically of nations, but it's, it tends to be a word um, that, that it can be used that way in the singular where it's talking about persons united by kinship, culture, and common tradition. But literally in the plural, it's nations and it refers to peoples or, or nations who don't believe in the God of Israel. It's a description between Jews and Gentiles, certainly, but it can be more than that. And the idea is that we are now to take the gospel to all those who do not worship the God of Israel. All those pagan people, all the people of the world now are to receive the gospel. Paul will use this word of, of believers, those who have come to know the true God through his son. And when he does so, he will, do, doing so, demark the fact that those, there are those in Christ who were not part of the nation of Israel where God was worshipped. Instead, they came from outside to worship the true God. And Paul says, these are the people that, that now need the gospel, those who are outside of Israel. And again, this is, this is what Paul, Paul's point was. This is what he was intended to do. Look at Acts chapter 26, verse 15. And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up, stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Now watch verse 17, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. In other words, I'm going to send you out as a light in the darkness into Satan's domain to give the gospel to all those who do not know me. And so Paul's mission was to the nations, to the pagans, those outside God's covenant people. Now it's interesting because we often think that the New Testament is the place where the gospel is supposed to go to all the world go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we think that God's saving program for the nations started in the New Testament, but it didn't. In fact, God has intended to save all people from the very beginning. If we remember back in Exodus chapter 19, God said that he would make Israel into what? A kingdom of priests. In other words, they were to be God's representative to the world. And now they would live according to God's commands and, and they would be a peculiar people who lived differently and they would shine God's light to the nations. And so they were supposed to live 
in some sense, remember Adam was supposed to rule and subdue the earth and demonstrate God's image to the world. Now Israel would be that messenger to the world and people would look at the nation and they should see the God of Israel. And so they were to be really a witness nation to the rest of the world that they might be seen and that God's glory might be seen through their obedience to him. Now it's interesting because you think of why did God put Israel in where, where they did? Why, why is the promised land where it is? Because when you look at it, and if you're just looking at it, it's not that nice of a place. It's awful hot. It's kind of deserty. I mean, if you were picking a spot, you might pick Florida, you might pick Hawaii. Those are really nice places. But here... God picked really not a very nice place. I mean, it's hot, it's dry. I mean, you have to really work to make a living there. Why would he put them there? Well, part of it was to show that if they flourished there, it was because God was what? Blessing them. He put them there and he said, people would look and say, something's going on there. And and remember, they had nation gods and they would look and they would say, there's something going on with that nation's God because they they are really doing well in a place that nobody really should do well. But there's a second reason I think that God put Israel there. And that is because it's a natural land bridge on the side of the, on the side of the Mediterranean. In fact, in Israel's history, they got trampled from both sides quite often, right? The Egyptians come up, the Syrians, the Babylonians. It was really a, a, a gateway to most of the known world. And so God planted his, his nation there as a witness, literally because everybody was coming there anyway. If they were going to conquer Egypt, down through Israel. If they're going to conquer Babylon, up through Israel. So there was a perfect place to sit really. It was geographically in the center of the world. Everybody went through it. And so he placed them there. God certainly had a global mission. He certainly had different ones that went out. Remember Jonah? He went out to Nineveh. Very reluctantly, because Jonah recognized that what God, God's program was what? People come to Israel, Israel doesn't go to the world, but God sent him out. And so what we do recognize is that God's global mission would not be completely fulfilled until and unless through Israel's coming Messiah. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at Isaiah 49, and you might want to just flip over there, Isaiah 49. This is a servant song of Isaiah. It's a song about the Messiah. And in verse, and in this verse, God the Father is talking to the Messiah, and he says this in verse 6. He says this, It is too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. It's too small of a job. That's too little. You're, you're, you're bigger than this. There's a bigger plan for you. And he says, 
I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Hear that? God was planning for the gospel and for salvation to go to the ends of the earth. And that's the heart of God. He wasn't just saving this tiny little people, this little people that he said really was no better than anyone else. You were smaller than everyone else and not significant and not powerful. But he was going to use them to be a witness and ultimately the Messiah that would come through them would fulfill that mission to be a light to the nations and for salvation to reach the end of the world. And Paul understood God's heart. In fact, if you look at Romans 1.13, if you just flip back in your Bibles, I trust you kept your finger there. He says, he says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you and have been prevented to do far, so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you, even among, as, even as among what? The rest of the what? Of the Gentiles. And then verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Right? Paul understood that mission. The gospel is God's global universal message. And ultimately, we know that that will even be proclaimed in the future. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse and wrote Matthew 24, 14, this is the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then what? The end will come. And so we must recognize this, that this gospel of obedience is to be preached to who? Everyone. This is not a, a gospel, a secret gospel, a Gnostic gospel, some truth that's hidden for certain people who have knowledge, but it is a gospel that God wants to be spread throughout the whole world. <clears throat> and that gospel is not for certain ethnic groups, for certain nations, for certain special people. It is for all men of all time. And we must be convinced that this gospel, there's just one gospel and it is sufficient for all mankind. And therefore our heart should be to recognize that this gospel that calls for obedience and this gospel that is based in faith must be spread to everyone. And it is God's good news to all men everywhere. And therefore we need to spread it. We need to be as committed to what God, to the spread of the gospel as Paul was. And the fact that God called Paul to what? To share the gospel with all nations. One gospel for all men, and we are responsible to take it. That's what Paul's job was, and that's what our job is. So we've seen this morning that the gospel demands a response. It is God's universal message to all mankind. And then we see this, the gospel is for his namesake. The gospel is for his namesake. 
He says, I have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Now the word for here is, is the Greek word hooper, and it, it, it has the meaning of aim or purpose or objective of an action, and it implies the ground or motivation for that action, the goal. And he says the goal, the foundational purpose of this gospel that goes forth, that transforms lives, that goes to, and, is, and is calling all men everywhere to be transformed by it, is ultimately for the glory of God. He says, <clears throat> he says in his name, and again that refers back to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 6. And that name represents not just his identity, not just like we do, or we use names to identify one another from one another, but it represents all that he is. And so the ultimate goal of the gospel is the glory of Jesus Christ. And in fact, it was to represent all of who Jesus Christ was to everyone so that they might worship him for what? All that he is. That he might be glorified for everything that he is. And again, this is what Paul's commission was. He was a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles. My name to, to, to demonstrate to the world and to tell everyone about me so that they might glorify me. Now notice this, the purpose of the gospel then is not primarily for the nations, right? He says here, to the Gentiles, to, to all men, to the nations, it's not just that, it's not just for the individual. The purpose of the gospel is not just to save you, not just to save individuals. Now certainly that is part of the gospel. We know that God has come to save and to forgive individually. That he loved us. He loved us before the foundation of the world. He loved us intimately. He forgave our sins. He died on the cross. But listen to this. The ultimate purpose behind salvation is not your good though that happens. But ultimately, what is behind it is the glory and the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus Christ came, he said, all the Father has given to me shall come to me and I will lose nothing. God was giving to his Son a group of redeemed people for his glory. In other words, when you were saved, Romans tells us that you were called to be what? For whom he foreknow, he be destined to be what? Be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, your salvation is primarily for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and for God himself. It's not about the individual. It's not about you. It's about, being, about bringing praise and glory to the son so that he is praised, that he is loved, that he is adored. And so as we come to salvation and as this salvation, this faith of obedience is seen and people are transformed, 
God's character is displayed through us and he is glorified. And as we come and worship him, he is glorified as we praise and honor him. And so the primary motive of our Christian life, listen to this, the primary motive for your Christian life is to advance the reputation, the honor, the glory of your master, Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what you're called to do. And so as we give the gospel, we are doing it because we have what? A zeal for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has to be our primary motive when it comes to missions. We often get the cart and before the horse, we get things backwards and we're so wanting to help people and we, we, we want to help them because they're poor and because they're, they're weak and they're needy and we want to help people and we want to lift them up. And we often witness even to our own family members and we're so wrought because we just want them to be saved and we want them to be, to be uh, changed and we want them to enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ and they want, we don't want them to go to hell and we want them to go to heaven. But the problem is that that becomes our primary goal and and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ comes second. And our goal needs to be to share the name of the Lord Jesus Christ because he deserves to be worshipped. He deserves to be honored. And that we desire his glory above the neediness of those around us. And we must recognize then that when we share the gospel, we must share the gospel with God's purposes in mind. In other words, when we share the gospel, we we share the gospel because we want the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ to be proclaimed to the nations and to all the individuals. And maybe some of the fear of men goes away when we recognize I'm not here It's not about you even. It's about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and I must proclaim it. I cannot because he is worthy of all honor and glory and therefore I must proclaim his name. I don't care if you reject him. I must give him the glory that is due him and I call on you to come in faith and repentance. Now that leads us to a a second application here and this is is simply this we must promote a gospel with we must promote first of all i said we must promote the gospel with god's purposes in mind secondly we must promote a gospel with god's purposes in mind in other words this understanding will control the content of your gospel This understanding will control the content of your gospel. This will keep you from giving a man-centered gospel where you appeal to people through their flesh and you say, listen, come to Jesus, he will fix your life. Come to Jesus, he has a purpose for you. Come to Jesus and everything will be better. He'll fix your mortgage, he'll fix your relationships. He wants you to be healthy, he wants you to be wealthy. 
And any gospel that you give must be centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must call people to repent of their sins against a holy God and to bow their knee to the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2.12 says that every knee will bow and confess that what Jesus Christ is Lord through the glory of the Father. That needs to be our goal. And so you cannot be going around presenting a gospel that somehow puts man as God's highest regard. Now listen to this. If any gospel that's given with man as central, by necessity, takes away from the glory of God. Any gospel that is given that puts man as the center of, man, of God's regard, by necessity, takes away from the glory of God. And it denigrates it. And so we must be dedicated to the gospel that puts Jesus Christ as Lord center to the gospel and that the gospel is spread because it is through the obedience of sinners who become saints that ultimately the glory of God is spread to the world and ultimately God is glorified. And he is most glorified by saving those who cannot save themselves. And so we must... We must get on God's program and recognize that the gospel is about God. Now, we certainly get benefits. There's no doubt that we get benefits. We get great benefits. We're blessed. We get fellowship with the eternal God. But primarily, God is giving a gift to his son, a group of redeemed people, the church that will be his bride. And you are called to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? For eternity, that's exactly what you will be doing. You'll have, you're being progressively sanctified now. You're going to take that giant step of sanctification at death where you will now be glorified. You will be free from the presence of sin and the power of sin. And you will now be, live in perfect obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and now you'll be perfectly conformed to his image that's the prize of the upward call and guess what for all eternity you're going to walk like him you're going to talk like him and you're going to give praise to him that's the end of the gospel and if we keep that central then we will preach a gospel that is life transforming life changing and has an eternal ability to change and so let us forever preach a gospel that is a go the true gospel that is based on obedient faith, faith that is obedient, that is given to all men for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do again thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truths that are in it. And again, I pray that we would have a full understanding of the necessity of a transforming faith. And I pray that you would convict each one of us where we are, that we would be those who would be obedient to you and that we would walk by faith. And if there's anyone here under the sound of my voice that doesn't know you or has made a profession but has never been transformed, that you would reveal that to them and that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and that they would see Jesus for who he is and that they would come to saving faith. 
Pray that you would give us a heart to share that gospel and recognize that it goes to all men everywhere and that we would be about our business here and that we would live lives as we share the gospel for his name's sake, recognizing that all that we do here on earth is ultimately for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray in your name. Amen.